Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Belt line to Broadway. Beltline, oh my, helps get through the tough times. Broadway, hooray. Let's all tune in to Beltline to Broadway. What do you say? You could binge any day. Listening to Beltline to Broadway. Beltline to Broadway. This is the Beltline to Broadway podcast. I'm Lauren Van Hamert, your host, and on this episode, I'm chatting with Telly Leung, who is directing the Theater Raleigh production of Yellowface. Now, you may know Telly for his portrayal of Aladdin on Broadway or from his TV appearances on Glee, but there is much more to Telly Leung than meets the eye, and that is where our conversation begins. My parents immigrated uh, to America, to New York City, from Hong Kong in 1975. Now, before that, they grew up in communist China during the Cultural Revolution. And so when they were teenagers growing up in the south of China, they grew up in the Guangzhou, the Cantonese area. Um, You know, this was a a moment of great sort of civil unrest. And Mao, during the Cultural Revolution, Mao took all the kids out of schools. It was the agrarian revolution. Um, so, you know, I think it was Mao's vision for China to be a, a self-sustaining commune where they farmed their own food and, and they didn't need any help from the outside world. And that is a very different picture of what China is today, of course. My parents, being teenagers, realized that without education that there was no uh, opportunity for them. So they did what a lot of Chinese kids did at the time. They plotted their escape from communism. So they actually... Uh, escaped communism by swimming from communist China to Hong Kong. And there's a whole generation of people that have done that. They're called freedom swimmers. You know, and, and they, you know, my, my mom, you know, she recalls jumping into the water late at night with several of her friends. And um, she, she has never heard or seen from those friends ever since that night. Um, and she swam over and she, she made it the first time. And my dad actually tried to swim the first time and was caught by the communists and like, and he was sent to a re-education camp where he had, he had to serve his time doing manual labor in the fields of China. And then when he was released, he tried again the second time, and he made it the second time. So um, so then they, then they actually met dating in Hong Kong in the 70s at a travel agency. My mom was a tour guide, and my dad was a file clerk. And they, um, they, they realized that you know they wanted to come to America because they wanted to have a kid that had all the opportunities that they did not have. 
So they came to the United States in the 70s, and that's sort of why I'm named Telly, because they watched a lot of television to learn English. So I'm named after Telly Savalas because Kojak was my mom's favorite show on television. And I think music was introduced to my life because my dad listened to a lot of popular American music in the 70s to learn English. So it was the Bee Gees and Donna Summer and Casey and the Sunshine Band and, you know, the whole Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. And, and then it was all those bands in the 70s. Too. It was like Air Supply and, and you know, and it was, you know, Barry Manilow. Like that was John Denver, Simon, you know, Simon and Garfunkel. That was all, all sort of... Part of my, just growing up, my dad would always play LPs. And so I, that was the music that was playing in the house. So I think that's how music entered my life. Um, and, uh, and, and I think my parents, you know, sacrificing everything that they, they, that they did to, to go to Hong Kong and then go to America, they had very high aspirations and dreams for me. You know, I think they thought I was going to, you know, go to, go to Harvard, be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, marry a nice Chinese girl and give them lots of Chinese babies. And none of the above happened. Like I, I did none of them, none of those things. So, you know, in, in a way like that traditional Chinese home thing of growing up three generations in a home, I grew up with my grandparents. They were in the home with us. My parents, aunties and uncles, cousins, we all lived in one big two family house in Brooklyn. Um, we respected our elders, you know, and of course, th there's that other, the other level of traditional Chinese home is also traditional Chinese immigrant home, where the, the, the children carry on the dreams of those immigrant parents who sacrifice so much for them to, to be here, to be in America, to achieve the American dream. And I always say, you know, it's interesting, like, for my parents, who, first of all, did not have an education in communist China, for them, the American dream is always a monetary one. You know, it's about money. It's about like, in China, I could not, even if I wanted to, even if I worked really hard, I wouldn't be able to make the kind of money to have, to own my own home or like send my kid to college or, you know, and, and they realized in America, that's that's what it was. So they did, they they worked hard, they saved every penny, they owned their own home, they had a car, they, they could only afford one child, so I'm an only child, but they sent me to college, you know? Um, and I think in a way, like, for I'm completing the other half of the dream that they didn't get to complete, which is now, now that I'm in America, now that I'm in the United States, I then get to choose. I have the freedom to choose what it is that I want to do. And to be able to choose the arts is amazing. To be able to choose a life doing what it is that I'm doing. And I think that that was a, a learning process for my parents, too. I think as I get older and my parents get older, we sort of get, I, we sort of get to the place where we start to even out as far as status goes, as far as like that traditional Chinese patriarchal respect your elders structure goes, all of a sudden the reverse happens and your parents treat you like an adult with their own mind and their own, um, their, their own sensibilities. And there are certain things that I love and I'm passionate about that are mine that they don't understand and that's okay. Um, uh, but, uh, but they are supportive of that because they see how much I love it. And, you know, they are supportive of that because I think they know that I, that what they did was give me a good head on my shoulders. And, and, and now I'm able to make those choices. The fact that I can make those choices is not something that they had in China. So I, I realize, and I think they realize, and they learned that this life that I'm leading, the life of an artist, the life of being an out you know, member of the LGBTQ community like that. Those are all things that um, they couldn't possibly have dreamed for me. But but because of what they did, I'm I'm able to live those dreams and I'm able to fulfill those dreams. And I think that they find great joy and fulfillment in that. It took them a minute, but they they I think eventually we got to a place where they got it. 
whenever I do these interviews, there's always a teacher, a mentor, someone who saw the spark. I kind of feel like your Broadway fairy godmother is Billy Porter. <laughs> He's certainly one of them. You know, I, I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon University, um, which is a very competitive program for musical theater. Um, they are now actually, sp- it's very exciting, but they're sponsoring an award at the Tony Awards every year. That's the Carnegie Mellon Educators uh, Award. They, they pick an educator, a K-12 educator, to honor every year with a, with a special Tony. And I'm so excited. This year, I get to present the award this Sunday. Billy Porter was also a, a Carnegie Mellon uh, musical theater uh, student and alumni. He, uh, he came back to direct my senior thesis show, which was Company. So here I was, a 22-year-old, way too young, Bobby in company, but it's college. And, you know, it's, it's not about the show, but it's, it's, it is about the process and what you learn along the way. So, um, but, um, but he came back to his alma mater because he wanted to direct. And he wanted a safe space in order to learn how to direct. And where better to do that than the place where he gained most of his training? So he, um, you know, his first Broadway show, he graduated Carnegie Mellon with a Broadway show waiting for him the fall after his graduation, which was the original company of Miss Saigon. And he was able to meet so many of the wonderful members of the Asian Broadway community. You know, there's a very tight-knit circle of us. And um, when he met them, he remained friends with all of them. He was sort of honorary in that way. Once you do Miss Saigon, you're sort of an honorary Broadway Asian. And when it came time to direct me in 2002, when I graduated, that was, he knew that the revival of Flower Drum Song was going to be on Broadway. You know, it had a wonderful, very successful run at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. David Henry Huang, who wrote Yellow Face, did a whole new book, a whole new libretto that sort of took out some of the some of the more, you know, the very racist sort of lines and, and plot lines that, that just wouldn't play, wouldn't read right in 2002 anymore from the original in the 1960s. So, um, so there was some, it was, we, we, David likes to call it a revisal is what he likes to call it. Um, it still maintained that beautiful score, those wonderful songs and those characters, but just slightly reimagined and restructured and, 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 but still captured the essence of what it was. And, um, and Billy said, Billy called up his dance captain from Miss Saigon many, many years ago, this gentleman named Mark Oka, who was going to be one of the associate choreographers on Flower Drum Song, and said, hey, listen, I have this Asian student that I'm teaching right now. He has no agent. He has no you know, no connections to New York City, but he's going to graduate this summer and he'll be in New York in the fall. Would you see him? So Billy picked up the phone and got me an appointment to my first Broadway audition. And this was a submissions only agents. You know, you you had to have an agent or be connected or have done a Broadway show before to be invited to this particular audition. This was not an open call. My agent was basically Billy Porter, who stuck his neck out for me. And, um, and he, you know, but also I played Bobby, so who's in every scene of company. So he was like, you can't leave tech. You actually have to stay here and do rehearsals for the show. And tech didn't end until midnight. So I had to take the Greyhound bus from midnight that got me into New York the next day. And I remember going, you know, I remember very clearly, it's like a, an 11 hour bus ride. It stops in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to, to refuel. And I, I got to New York, you know, nine ten in the morning, splashed some water on my face. And I was at my first Broadway audition. And I told Billy, I, you know, I told Billy that if I ever, if I did get the job that I was going to, you know, I know I only get 25 words in my first playbill as an ensemble member or something, but I, I was like, thank you, Billy Porter, we'll be on it if I get this job. And if you look at my first Broadway playbill, actually, it's like, thanks, mom and dad. And the last four words are thank you, 
Billy Porter because, uh, you know, it, it really is a, a teacher that, again, sees something in you before you even saw it in yourself. So you mentioned Miss Saigon. Yeah. And I, I, this is a great springboard into mm. yellow face. Nice segue. See how I did that? <laughs> um, and David Henry, because he felt so strongly about the casting of Jonathan Price in Miss Saigon, that kind of got the ball rolling that led to the show you're directing here at Theatre Raleigh. <laughs> so uh, very famously, David was the leader in this movement to protest the casting of Jonathan Price in the role of the engineer in Miss Saigon. And it is a Eurasian role. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, for, for American actors, we said there are so many wonderful Asian actors in America. Why? Why would you, why would British equity and American equity bring a British actor over here? We should really, this should be an opportunity to make a star out of an Asian actor. There are already so few opportunities for us for people that look like us. And here we are, this huge musical that's coming to to New York that had a wonderful run and won so many Olivier Awards in London that it, it would be a really wonderful opportunity to, to, to cast an Asian person. You know, you know we, we, are, we thought in those days that we were past those days of, you know, Fu Manchu and Charlie Chan and all of that. So, we, you know, we really thought that we were past the yellow face of that, that we're really going to have a white actor who's going to put yellow base, you know, on their, on their skin and tape up their eyes in order to play an Asian person. Like it just it, it felt really wrong. And so David, he had just won a Tony Award for M. Butterfly. And he was the spokesperson, the leader, in many ways, of the of the Asian theater community. He he was our champion. He was the he was the person that represented hope and possibility and opportunity. If David Henry Huang could win a Tony Award, the, the, you know, and B. D. Wong could win a Tony Award, then then it, it opened doors for us. And here was the the coming of Miss Saigon slamming a big door in our face. So David protested it, but the protest ended up backfiring on David because Cameron threatened to not bring the show into New York at all. So Actors' Equity, uh, who I think in the beginning supported David, they pulled their support because they realized that this Miss Saigon, if it was anything like Les Mis, was going to run for years and years and years and be work for many, many people. The theater owners, of course, opposed David's protest because they knew that a Cameron show was going to run forever and ever and be, you know, a, a good tenant for them. Um, even the mayor, Ed Koch, even protested it because he, because again, Ed Koch is thinking of, of the city and tourism and how, how many tourists would come from all over the world to come see Miss Saigon on Broadway. So, um, it, this this thing ended up being it ended up imploding on David in a lot of ways, and um, and then of course notoriously his show right after M Butterfly was a show called Face Value which was a huge flop. So um, in, I, I think what David was trying to do it, with Yellowface now is a recount that story from his point of view, but also b use it as a springboard to a talk about what it means to be Asian, what it means to be American through the lens of theater and through the lens of this sort of very backstage showbiz sneak peek farce, right? Um, But he really does let us have a sneak peek into the world of what it is to cast a show, what it is to take a show out of town. You know, he he writes in real people that exist in show business. So, you know, Vinnie Liff is a real casting director. B.D. Wong is played by an actor in the show. Jane Krakowski's in the show. So, you know, all of these were players in this story. 
Um, but he also na- then fictionalizes, what if I mistakenly cast a Caucasian actor at, uh, and thought he was Asian mm-hmm. in an Asian role? What if I, being the, the person who's supposed to be leading this movement for color-conscious casting, um, f- made a mistake? And, and I think, uh, and of course, comedy ensues mm-hmm. when you have somebody who is in that high of a position that then f- has fumbles and makes mistakes. But I also, in some way, I think it's, it's very valuable for David to put himself in the play mm-hmm. because we have to understand that, you know, conversations about race are sensitive, and, but they are also ever-evolving. And we are going to make mistakes, you know, jokes that were jokes that were told by comedians in 2022 are different than the jokes that were told by comedians in 2012 mm-hmm. are different than the jokes told by comedians in 2002. And they should be. We should evolve as a society to go. That's not OK anymore. Yeah. We shouldn't. That's not a, that's not an OK joke anymore, because the joke is now it's what are we laughing at? Why are we laughing at this? And as we dissect that, you know, we have to understand it, it, and it challenges us as artists, especially the comedians, to go find a better joke. And it forces us on the other side, the theater makers and the storytellers, to be more careful and more specific in the way we tell stories. Um, but, uh, but I also – but in that, in the creation of art and in, in the conversations that we have about race, whether that's in a theater or at dinner after we see the show or in living rooms, we are going to mess up. And I think what David brilliantly does is he writes a huge mess up in this play, and it gives us permission to A, laugh at him, but B, laugh at ourselves when we mess up, and also learn from that moment of going, oh, gosh, I really messed up there. That's not okay for me to say anymore. I'm, I've learned from that. I'm even able to, like, to laugh at myself or that version of myself that's, that, that I know I can be better than and, and, and grow from that. You know him, you've met him, yeah. you've worked with him. Knowing him as a person and directing a play where he is a character, and he's one of the few playwrights that have written himself into a play as a character. Does it change how you approach the show, how you approach directing? I'm going to be really honest. When I heard about Yellowface, and I got to see Yellowface in 2008, and I thought, David wrote himself in a show? Gosh, that's narcissistic, isn't it? And then when I realized what he was doing, which was that he was writing himself in a show and writing not not the most perfect version of himself. Actually, he was writing a very imperfect version of himself so that we could laugh at him. He was making himself the butt of a joke and sort of sacrificing his own image. As who as as this you know titan of Asian theater, right? Like he was knocking himself off his own pedestal in order to tell a story and to also hopefully have us have really great conversations about race and identity when we leave the theater. But he made himself a fool in order to do that. And I thought, oh, that's when I saw the play. I said, oh, that's really bold. And not only that, but you know, he wrote Yellowface shortly after his father passed. So in many ways, it was and his father notoriously was a, a very. Uh, you know, came to America and was a very patriotic sort of a guy. And, you know, it, and we talk about this in the play where, you know, he, his, his, he saw himself as sort of a, a John Wayne or, um, or a Cary Grant or a Frank Sinatra. You know, he, he, he thought of him as just like those men who epitomized the possibility and the opportunity that America gives, the American dream, and what a beautiful thing it is. Um, but of course, David's dad was caught up in a huge scandal that involved his job because David's father, Henry Huang, was the, was the chairman of the board of a bank. 
that was connected to a lot of foreign money. And some of those people had donated to political campaigns. And of course, you know, the, the elections committee and the government was investigating foreign ties into election financing. And of course, that has become all of a sudden very relevant again with, with, the, with, um, with Russia and Trump. So I think he wrote himself in it so that he could tell a very personal story. So yes, of course, the, the, the protest of Miss Saigon ended up backfiring in his face and being very embarrassing. Then he fictionalizes another embarrassing situation. What if I cast a Caucasian actor by accident in, as the lead of yellow face, as the lead of face value, and I've now, now I'm a hypocrite, right? But he also did it so that in some ways he's able to unpack the loss of his father, his father who epitomized the American dream to him and hope and possibility. Um, and I, and you know, and, and I also, uh, what I did was, <laughs> I'm uh, cheating a little bit because I cast Alan Ariano, who's a dear friend of mine, but Alan has also worked with David. Alan's first uh, Broadway show was the original cast of M. Butterfly understudying B.D. Wong. And he's playing David's dad. Not only that, but Alan was in the original Broadway company of Miss Saigon. So he knows it. He knows the Miss Saigon controversy from that side. I met Alan doing the, the revisal of Flower Drum Song. So he worked with David again there. So, um, you know, I, I, I had to cast Alan because, A, he's a brilliant actor. But, B, I have somebody who's the source for this unfaithful uh, documentary, if you will, that, that David's trying to tell, you know. He lived it. He was there. During COVID... There were several very public Asian hate crimes. We started seeing this swelling up in the hashtag Stop Asian Hate um, movement, lots of solidarity statements. And then following the murder of George Floyd, saw this rising up of the We See You White American Theater movement. What is the significance of telling this story now? COVID and how it was spoken about by the last administration, which tried to scapegoat an entire country for a global pandemic <laughs> that, that is really nobody's fault. I mean, the, if, if the, pan, the pandemic could have easily started anywhere and in the world, right? Um, and eventually we all, have to, we all have to contend and deal with it, right? But the way it was, the way it was portrayed, the... the you know, the terms like Kung Flu and all of that, you know, done in a way to, to villainize Asian people where, where, when COVID was of no fault of ours, certainly not of Asian Americans, right, where COVID didn't start, you know, um, it opened the doors, it opened Pandora's box for the, for the worst in us, the fear of, and of, of who's different, um, the fear and the paranoia that, that people that look different than us are out to get us. Um, you know, it, it sort of suppresses the better angels in us that, that, that reinforces our, you know, belief in humanity, that we are all human beings at the end of the day, that we're, you know, that, that um, no matter what our ethnicity or skin color is, that we all are mothers and fathers and sons and friends and, and wives and spouses. And, you know what I mean? So, yeah, you know, it, it, we all know this. That's the better angels of us. And then there's the other side of it that, that, that there, the words like that, when words are being thrown around like that, like 
kung flu, you know, that, that all of a sudden they drown out those better angels is what ended up happening. And it does open a box of hate out of fear of what we don't know. Um, and my community definitely felt that. People sort of felt this permission to physically attack people in our community. And not only attack people in our community, but most of the time they were elderly people in our community, people that couldn't defend themselves, which was really heartbreaking. After the, the murder of George Floyd, uh, our country had, a, had to really reconcile race and the structures that have been put in place that we are sometimes aware of, but oftentimes not aware of, you know, and I, and I know, you know, for me, you know, I, I remember growing up as a little kid and, you know, my, my parents being immigrant parents, knowing that every day I would go to school and say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, liberty and justice for all is how it ends. And I remember being five years old and my parents pulling me aside and going, listen, I know you say this Pledge of Allegiance every day. We had to say it when we went to our citizenship naturalization process. Just know that in this country, you say that and that is the promise of this country, but there are going to be people who don't believe that. No matter what you do, they will judge you by the color of your skin. They will think lesser of you. And it is not liberty and justice for all, for some people. So just know that I know you're saying this every day, and we hope to aspire to be that. That is why we love being in America. That's why we want you to grow up American. This is why we moved here all the way from China, then Hong Kong, then New York, right? But um, that's not the reality. And they said it so that I would be careful. That, you know, there are, that there's two separate rules. Well, now I'm married 18 years to my spouse, who is Caucasian, white, grew up in Indiana. And I remember telling him that I had this conversation as a little kid. And he was like, really? You had this conversation? And I realized, oh, right. He never had, his parents never had to have this conversation with him. The talk. The talk. And so the yellow face also deals with that, that in, in some way, you know, you can be as, a, as American and as patriotic as Henry, and you will be suspected of, of wrongdoing. Or you would be suspected of uh, being, uh, being working for China s- simply because of your last name and the color of your skin. This has happened. So in, in some ways, yes, we know that that, is, that has happened to black people in America. Oftentimes, racism against Asian people is not talked about. I feel like it was more talked about once there were all of these violent acts that happened to my community during COVID. But um, – but I, but I think what Yellowface does and why I think it's wonderful that we're doing it again here in 2022 at Theater Raleigh is that it's important to, to also see racism from an Asian-American perspective as well. When the Black Lives Matter swelling up happened after the George Floyd murder and, and all of these changes around theater and the arts were being discussed, I was concerned that Asian artists were being left out of the conversation. Yeah, and I'm, listen, I'm, when, when all of that was happening, post-George Floyd, when people were hitting the streets in protest, I, I am very proud of my community because we hit the streets with Absolutely. black Americans. Absolutely. You know, I, we, we walked out, we went to protest, we, pick, we did that because we know for sure that unless 
you know, no one is free unless all of us are free. And that, that to me, I think we've woken up to that. You know, so for so long, Asian people have been the model minority in this country or, or been pegged the model minority. And in some ways, that is just a way for the people who are in charge of the white supremacist culture to then pit one, one group of people of color against another, right? So, and I think in, the mo- in that moment of George Floyd, my community woke up to that and went, we can't, we can't do that anymore. It's not, it's not us against them anymore. We really have to do this together. And in some ways, it's, it was the perfect storm of events, right? Like COVID caused all of us to be home, sitting in front of our televisions to watch, to watch that horrific thing happen to George Floyd. And it, and it forced us to be still in our homes, to discuss this with our family and our children and our friends. And, um, and I think Yellow Face at Theater Raleigh hopefully is sort of like a continuation of those conversations. You know, the play is different. The play is going to feel different and read differently in 2022 than when I saw it in 2008. And if anything, I think we are more prepared to have the conversations that I hope people have when they leave the theater after seeing the show, because we've been having them, finally. The Asian American Performers Coalition just received a Tony. Yay! Thrilling. <laughs> um, about time. They've been doing a lot of great work for a long time That's for right. Asian artists. Does it feel like progress to you or does it feel performative i don't know if it feels performative you know at the end of the day being recognized by a tony award is awesome you know what i mean like i i just i was just on facebook this morning and seeing my dear friend who's 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 part of that or who's part of that organization who just won a tony christine toy johnson who has been fighting the good fight on Equity Council, you know, re, you know, speaking for Asian Americans in theater for years, ever since I've known her, ever since I worked with her on Flower Drum Song Tour in 2003, like she's been advocating for our community. For her to walk that red carpet and receive that honorary Tony plaque is amazing. That doesn't mean that there's not more work to do. And it's wonderful that you receive the plaque. It's, it's, it's really what happens after that. Now what? So great. We've received this plaque. We've received this recognition. Does the recognition mean more opportunities and more jobs for my community? Does this mean that we're going to see more of us behind the table, directing, producing, investing, owning theaters, general managing, company managing? That's, that's the change. So great. Now that we have this honorary Tony and, and now that we have your attention, will you listen from this point on? In an article about your Empathy Concert Series... You said, empathy is our strongest weapon to combat ignorance, fear, and hate. What role do you think um, theater and art have in affecting change? Yeah, the empathy concerts grew out of empathy being such a hot word in corporate America post-pandemic. You know, let's be empathetic to all of our first responders, all of those essential workers, let's be empathetic to people working from home who have to then also parent and homeschool their kids. Let be, let's be empathetic to, you know, all of that, right? Um, what, what we quickly realized when I started doing these empathy concerts with my, with my co-host, Elliot Maisie, who's actually a, a, a guru and a leader in the world of corporate learning and development, right? He, um, he says, listen, corporate America has no idea what empathy means. He's also a Broadway producer. He goes, but guess who does? Theater artists. It is literally our job as 
actors to walk in somebody else's shoes eight times a week. It is my job to understand the intentions and to try my best to see the world through somebody else's eyes every night in the characters that we play. So, of course, we are loaded with the skills. In fact, if, if anything, I remember when we started doing these empathy concerts and talking about the role of empathy in our lives and the role of empathy in our work and, and the role of empathy in our world as citizens of the world, I was like, oh, I, we do this. Theater people do this and we don't even think about it, right? And it's those skills that I was talking about, the theater for life skills of collaborating and being able to share space with other people, with people that don't agree with you, with people that have different ideas than you. We are skilled at that. We are constantly working with other people in order to make art happen. Actors are constantly asked to jump into the shoes and into the actual costumes of, and, and, and point of views of other people every night and do that in a truthful way. So I said, yeah, I, I think corporate America and all of America has a lot to learn from, from what it is that we do. So it's interesting, like during the pandemic, you know, there was this divide of who's deemed essential and who's, de who's not deemed essential. And with Broadway shutting down right away, you know, we were deemed not essential, right? Well, I, I dare those people to say artists are not essential. I say to them, so tell me, during the pandemic, did you watch Netflix? Did you read books? Did you listen to music to make you feel better? Uh, those are all who, – who do you think makes those things? Storytellers and artists and theater people. So that sort of healing – is not more important than the people healing us from a pandemic, but it is healing in a different way and just, just as necessary. What do you hope audiences will take away from seeing this production? <laughs> well, first of all, um, the, the play uh, is two parts in a way. It's sometimes very funny and a, and a sort of a showbiz farce, I, I call it. But it's also a, a sort of a, also a, a pretty riveting political drama as well, all rolled in one, as only David Henry Huang could do. So I hope people laugh, and I hope people come and they are prepared to think and prepared to be challenged by, by what they think of as race and what they think of as identity, what they think of as the face that they have to show others and their true face. And I, you know, it's always my hope when making theater that people leave the theater and they continue to talk about the play. And they continue to talk about how the play relates to their lives. You know, it would be my dream if people left Theater Raleigh, left our space, went, you know, to Denny's afterwards and like talked about it and talked about how it related to their lives, you know, and, and share that moment together. The Theater Raleigh production of Yellow Face opens June 22nd and runs through July 3rd. I'll put a link to Theater Raleigh's website in the episode notes. Next up for Telly is an appearance at BroadwayCon in New York City this July. Beltline to Broadway will be there as well, covering every moment. So be sure you are following us on Facebook or Instagram at Beltline to Broadway or Twitter at Beltline to B-Way so you don't miss a minute. If you like what you've heard today, be sure to subscribe to this podcast or visit us online at www.beltlinetobroadway.org. Until next time, I'll see you at the theater. Beltline to Broadway. 
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh. 